You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome back into another edition of the Hazard Ground Podcast. We thank you guys for joining us every week, as you always do. We certainly appreciate it. If you get a chance, make sure you guys are subscribed to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now, of course, Spotify, which is great news for us that we're also in another outlet for you guys. Make sure you subscribe to us there. Leave a rating and a review. That certainly helps us out as well. Check us out on all of our social media sites, Facebook and Instagram, Hazard Ground Podcast, on Twitter, at Hazard Ground. And joining us this week is a retired Army sergeant, who was a direct action sniper with 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. He's also nicknamed the Reaper, credited for 33 official kills during one single deployment, a record that still stands today. He also has two books out, one called The Reaper, another one coming out, or that just came out, I should say, called The Way of the Reaper. And he was also part of a television show, True Grit, on Fox. He has done it all. His name is Nicholas Irvin, and he joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, that is a lengthy list of accomplishments. Uh, so we have a lot to cover and a lot to get to. Let's just start with the most basic stuff. How did you get into the military? Uh, it's a lifelong dream. It's something that uh, I guess I was almost born into. Both of my parents, mom and dad, they were in the Army. I was born overseas in uh, Augsburg, Germany, and I moved to the States, hopped around for a little bit before settling down in Maryland. And I want to say in the sixth grade, around that time frame, I, re- I remember going to like my dad's staff duty or something like that, and watching him raise the flag and his uniform, and growing up, and, and you know, from the toddler age, wearing his boots, and I fell down the steps uh, because of you know this old jungle uh, black boots he used to have, and it was just something I always wanted to do. And the sixth grade is when I, I guess, settled it in and, and said I wanted to be a sniper. And my mom helped me make my first uh, official ghillie suit and helped put leaves on top of me, and I, I sniped. Uh, uh, objects and birds and, and a lot of light poles and uh, gutter drains and people on people's homes uh, for, for a few years. And I guess that's where the, the skill perfected. So you knew you wanted to be a sniper when you were in the sixth grade. Did you see something? Did something kind of draw you into that? How yeah. did you end up with the word? How did you end up with sniper? Was it on a TV cartoon? Yeah. What? It was a, a movie. My dad, um, he loved Chuck Norris and from Walker, Texas Ranger to Chuck Norris when he was in Delta Force and, it was just one of those uh, things I guess I gravitated to, and, and I used to watch it with them, Chuck Norris, Delta Force, and the sniper scenes, and um, Charlie Sheen and Navy SEALs. Um, my original goal was to be a Navy SEAL, and it was because of the whole Charlie Sheen thing, and uh, G.I. Jane, and um, all these film movies that came out uh, you know, before the global war on terrorism, and um, started reading up on books. I used to go to the library, and before I had a library card, I was still a book. And uh, read up on uh, special operation guys from, you know, the Vietnam War, and, and those were my idols. And uh, and listening to the Navy Sea Cadet Corps, uh, my mom, uh, she almost went, you know, we were already tight on cash, but she, you know, gave up what she could, and then um, went on to uh, Navy Sea Cadet Corps in Annapolis, and uh, got out of school. I should have never gotten out of school with my grades, and uh, it was an act of uh, greater universe. Uh, a kinder universe, if you want to call it that, for me, um, for the school to allow me to miss like two weeks of school um, in high school to go off to the Baby Seal program. Um, but it was a pretty intense program to get in. Uh, to get into the program, you have to pass the uh, official uh, U.S. Navy Seal uh, Buds pre-screening test or something. It's a 500 meter swim in like 12 minutes, 30 seconds, or wow, um, plus or minus a few minutes. You do the 70 plus push-ups and 
sit-ups and pull-ups and then a two-mile run or something and, and boots and pants. And I was 15 when I was completing that and um, started doing this little baby seal program and I had my little trident. Um, uh, 17 years old, I went into, uh, I went into the uh, METS, our recruiter station, and um, uh, my entire career, uh, not career, but my entire time in high school, I was in ROTC, and it's the only A I ever got in high school, and uh, that grade dropped down to a B. My mom was a little upset about that, but uh, it was just a lifelong thing. And went to the recruiter station and wanted to be an Navy SEAL and took this color vision test, uh, the easy horror test, and turns out that I'm colorblind, so I was denied that, and my dreams of, you know, being the Charlie Sheen uh, spec ops Navy SEAL sniper were, you know, officially crushed. So uh, instead of giving up, I went home and studied on the Internet back when it was like dial-up and, uh, you know, if your mom picks up the phone, the Internet service <laughs> yeah. off. When someone would yeah. call in, they would knock you offline. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. He used to be like, why are you calling my phone right now? I'm on the Internet. Yeah. I was studying every possible or what I could find um, easy horror test. And, uh, the possible, you know, I, will, I would, I guess, remember some of the colors and, you know, of the pattern and, and remember that that number associates with this pattern. And I go in there for a second go around and I'm, I'm, you know, telling everyone I'm not colorblind. There's no way I have to pass this. So I stayed up all night for a few days and studied up for this test and I went to go take it again. Um, uh, and, and with the way the universe works, uh, it was not the easy horror test. It was a, a different test. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. You know, and luckily this army nurse, um, I guess, you know, I guess maybe she saw the persistence. So she had volunteered to, uh, administer the, uh, the test and she traced her finger on the, um, the, the, essentially the, the numbers on what I was supposed to be looking at. I had no idea there was, you know, numbers inside this little picture, but obviously the worst. So she traced them out with her finger and I would repeat it. Uh, I would repeat it and she'd write it down and I still have both tests to this day. Uh, the zero out of 14 for uh, color vision deficiency and a 14 out of 14, uh, 100%. There's no color blind. I passed the test. And uh, it was on from there. And listening to the military at 17, my parents had to uh, sign the parental consent. My mom, you know, she cried and cried and cried at the dinner table. And my dad was like, hey, he has to go out and be a man. Um, he has to make his own decisions now. And he uh, signed off on it and off I went. Off I went to the to the army. At that point, it was no longer Navy SEAL. It was either the ne next best thing you have or comparable to the uh, Navy SEAL. And basically, it was a, a Navy SEAL contract, just minus the swimming uh, on the army side. So I went on to be a to be a ranger. So why was your mom crying? I mean, she's prior military. She was military. So was your dad. You said. So what, what was she was so upset about? We hadn't gone to war yeah. yet, had we? What, what year of your life was this? Uh, this was right at uh, senior year of high school, so 2004, and okay. just, you know, three years prior to that, 9-11 um, happened, and the job I was getting into or volunteering to get into, you know, you know, it was a guaranteed 100% chance I'm going to go to combat, and she just wasn't, you know, I guess ready for, uh, you know, the whole combat thing. She knew that's what I've always wanted to do was to join the the military to, to, to some capacity and I guess essentially not, not go to combat, but I don't know. Charlie Sheen just made it look so cool on TV. So <laughs> I figured I'd give it a shot too, but there was no war at the time. It wasn't something that, you know, I, I knew as a, uh, would be a definite, uh, I'm going to go to war. It was just something that happened 9-11 and, and I was not going to stop pursuing my, my dream. There was no college option uh, with right. the, the way my lifestyle was, uh, 
I guess, set up at that point in time did, in school and academics. Did either of your parents deploy in, in the three years prior to you enlisting? No, they were on the uh, the, the counterintelligence side. So it was a, a desk job. Uh, they they served, to, I guess, you know, some capacity, but just not uh, what may, uh, I guess most relate to today in, in terms of combat. It was more or less behind the desk. When you signed up with your Ranger contract, did you have something in your contract that was going to send you to sniper school? Or is that something you had to finally get once you got in? Oh, yeah, that was something I had to get once I got in. It was uh, essentially all I had was just the Ranger contract. It was an option 40, and uh, I, I, I figured once I got there, I would make everything work. It was just, I don't know, it's just one of those things that it, it was a goal, and I was going to chase that goal. There was nothing really going to, you know, I guess, deter me from, from pursuing or, or chasing that 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 end goal and, and that's what it was to be and I figured once I got my foot in the door I'd be as good as I possibly could be and hopefully that approved itself and they send me off to sniper school it was all this uh, basically putting my eggs all in one basket and and just taking that risk so what happens from the time that you get in and you go to basic uh you go to AIT you go to ranger school uh and what happens from the time you get out of ranger school until the time you get to sniper school Oh, it's completely different, uh, totally different. So I went to basic, and basic is, you know, basic infantry, and I went to AIT for my infantry school, and, uh, you know, I had that high-speed, you know, personality and thought I could take on the world, and after that, I went over to airborne school. Airborne school was, uh, was like four weeks or three weeks or something like that. I went on to airborne school, uh, passed that, and went on to ranger indoctrination program. It's like our selection process to... Uh, get into the 75th Ranger right. Regiment. And um, I, I, the class size was somewhere around 80 plus, 80 to 85 guys, and, um, you know, all these, you know, big guys, guys who were, you know, in shape, and I'm just a little on me, and, and I'm like, ah, it just wasn't, I, I thought that these guys were, you know, top notch, and I was the little guy who was going to probably end up, you know, giving it up in the end, and certainly graduated seven guys, and one of those guys happened to be a rollover. So from our original class size, six graduated. Um, I was one of those guys left standing, and it was kind of like, whoa, you know, uh, the outer appearance has you know nothing to do with this job, and it's all about the, I guess, the heart and the drive, and never wanting to get up and or give up. Went on to Ranger Battalion, and my six-month probation time started there. And within that six months, it was essentially just training up with the the unit after they got back from deployment. And after those six months, is where you kind of go to the Super Bowl. Are you? you get a chance to prove yourself. So my first deployment, I went to uh, Chikrit, Iraq, and it was a, uh, it was a, it was a, a crazy experience. What year crazy. is this, Nicholas? What year? Uh, this was 2005. Okay. Going into 06, I believe. Okay, so we, were, the, we were there at the same time. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, during the Al-Zakari incident. Yes, okay. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, uh, I, was I was there at that time. Um, yeah, so I was there in Iraq at that time. And uh, I got a chance, I was 18, and got a chance to, uh, you know, see a lot of cool things. And, and the first you know, time I ever had a chance to pull the trigger and, and in combat and defense of, you know, a situation we were in. It was, uh, you know, also the first time in my life I've ever been on the receiving end of uh, some crazy gunfire and having no idea, you know, with this gunfire, what I felt my, my ear protection, my sword into the time were going out, uh, the batteries or something. So I just changed these batteries. I hear this clicking and popping. And my uh, team leader comes over, uh, tackles me to the ground. He's like, dude, and, you know, X, Y, and Z, we're getting shot. We're getting shot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's what that thing is. And I could feel the brick wall behind me. 
kind of coming down and hitting my helmet, but I had no idea that's what it was. Now, hang on a second. So let's let's pause here and, and d- dive into this a little bit. The first mm-hmm. time you fired a weapon in combat at the enemy, you, you've obviously had tons of practice leading up to this point, uh, like oh, yeah, I have. And this is, you know, the, I remember that moment for me, and and mm-hmm. I remember a, a split second of hesitation, and I just yep, had a yep. quick thought of. Once I pull this trigger, nothing in my life is ever the same again. Yep. Everything changed. Yep. Same thing. Yeah, same, same here. It was, uh, it was more than a split second for me. It was a repeated instructional, uh, I guess, chewing out from my platoon leader. Um, hey, hit this guy, hit this guy. It was like, what? You know, I'm going to hit that with a 50 cal gunner. And, uh, it was, you know, this guy's approaching our convoy. And it was a, just one of those things. And it turns out that he had some IEDs in the back of the trunk uh, or in his vehicle. And, this was just a weird, weird experience. He's like, yeah, you're right. I knew that after I do this, that that's it. Like, life's going to be totally different in, in one way, shape, or form. I'm going to look at it differently or who knows, but it's all from here. And so what was it like when you realized you were first getting fired at? Uh, what what did that do to your senses? Uh, it, I just went numb. I went, I was, I was extremely confused at that point. We had been uh, in country for 80, 70 plus 80 days. And, you know, we're all already in like 120 plus missions into it. And we had never been really shot at. We've been, you know, exposed to IEDs and suicide bombers and stuff like that. But, uh, I was never really, you know, engaged to the point where you can hear the snaps and the pops and stuff like that. Everything just seemed so one-sided leading up to this firefight. I thought we were, you know, this was, you know, the team and I was robbing and everyone else is like, Batman and I'm just along for the ride, new guy, um, you know, mentality. And, and getting shot at was just like, ah, it, I don't really know if I had a, like an emotion. It, I didn't have time to really get scared because my team leader tackled me and I was just so confused, like, whoa, that's, that's what it sounds like. So I have to listen out for this key thing. And it's not like the movies where you can hear the boom from the gun. It's the, you know, the explosion from the barrel. It's more or less the the hypersonic crack or the super, uh, you know, sonic crack as the bullet snaps past your ear or your head. And I was like, I have to get used to that amongst, you know, everything's done on their night. Uh, there's a lot of guys running around and, you know, the, the guys I were with, they were, they were, you know, stellar athletes. And I'm like, it was just so confusing at the, at the time. And uh, we had two snipers uh, with us and they ended up, uh, you know, killing these targets and they went up on the rooftop and uh, some silver stars were issued after that, uh, that, that that deployment, but I was more or less just a guy on the bleachers. And um, shortly after that, a, a little bird went down, and getting tasked out to to go get you know secure this little bird, and me running the fastest mile. Well, one, no, I would say the second fastest. But I have one that, that beats that. But the second you know time I've ever ran a mile that fast was uh, when this little bird went down, and seeing all the chaos and uh, Bakuba. That's uh, so we like, Bakuba. It was a crazy, crazy crazy time as a kid coming out of high school and and now i'm seeing you know iraq under this green haze that that you know you only see on tv this little small clips of but here i am it was just it was weird it was weird you know it's funny i i've remarked and you know we have a large civilian audience listening to our to the podcast as well as military and you know we, we've kind of waxed about this before it, it's you know, we talk so much about, oh, this is not a video game. You know, this is real life when it comes to combat. Yeah. And the funny part is, is at least for me, you know, the decision to pull the trigger it's, is much less video game than the rounds coming back at you. Like most of the people I know, yeah. who, who, when they get hit, they're shocked that they actually got hit. 
Like, exactly. You know, it's, it's yeah. just, it's yeah. a weird feel. Like even if you see somebody else get hit, you're like, oh damn, yeah, this is real. But you don't, yeah. re- until you get hit. And thankfully yeah. for me, it never happened, you know, but I, I, there, there, you feel like you can walk through gunfire like you do oh, in a yeah. video game. But when you're shooting, <laughs> it's totally different. I mean, that, you, you get that. Oh yeah. Big time, big time. I mean, I, I was scared the entire time and, um, it wasn't until I want to say I was a sniper. Uh, you know, I did. I've done you know, five deployments leading up to it. Then I had a break. I went off to ranger school. Um, uh, you know, after my probation time, I knocked out two deployments or three deployments to Iraq. Went on to ranger school and uh, failed the first phase. Had to recycle that. Went on to mountain and mountain phase is where I kind of made this. Uh, I was a killer decision of if I have to redo this again, I'm quitting. Like. I don't care what battalion sends me. If you if you quit Ranger School, that's an automatic. You're out of the right. the, the unit you know, onto the bigger bigger army needs. But I made that decision that after this school, if I have to, or during the the course of the school, if I have to recycle one more time, that's it. You know, they can send me to South Korea. They can send me to North Korea. I don't really care. It was that school sucked so bad. It was a yeah, that was just a terrible school. I lost like 35 pounds in that yeah. school. Some <laughs> drinking water that I wasn't supposed to drink and hallucinating and eating mint leaves that smelt like rent and talking to George Foreman in the bush. <laughs> it wasn't there. It was a it was crazy, crazy school. I hate it. Oh, I hate it. Yeah, and Ranger yeah, School, that, Ranger school is nine weeks of hell, as we've talked about a lot on the show. Oh, yeah. It, it's not an easy school. I, I respect anyone who, you know, he can, who can complete that school and, you know, come out smiling and swinging. I, I've, I've never really seen it. But um, there are some tough guys working at school, but it, it's, a, it's a brutal school. Um, but yeah, after I graduated that, I, I bulked up and just basically ate everything that you know came within five, you know, five meters from my face. It was, you know, trying to put on some weight and staying at the chow hall and lifting weights and trying to get back on that that that, uh, that routine and deployed on to. Uh, after that, I went on to sniper school. Okay. Um, or sniper section. Now, how how did you actually? What's the process to get into sniper school? Yeah, so uh, for battalion, it's such a, a small organization, and the sniper section is extremely small and tight knit, and uh, it, it 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 can come down to who you know, um, or it could just come down to you put in. in uh, for my case, I put in a packet to go to sniper section. Your team leader and your commander, and you know your NCOs above you, they all have to approve of it. Um, you know, for in order to get selected, or, or at least put your packet into sniper section. Um, they only have the you know best of the best, and those guys. Being a sniper, you're you're overlooking so many people's lives, and you have to make crucial, crucial decisions. Um, so it's a it's a pretty pretty cool job, and they want to make sure they cross all their T's and dot their eyes uh, when it comes to it. So put the packet in, and got approved, and went on to their little uh, selection process. So it's another uh, another little like uh, miniature. Rip or rasp now uh, the selection process. It wasn't too hard. It was, you know, I don't think we'll have to even talk about like the the details of whips and tails in it. But I mean, if it's, 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 you're a ranger and you make it to that point, you'll be able to pass the physical portion of it. I hope. Um, it looked bad if you didn't. And then after that, we took some mental mental tests and psychology tests and evaluations and the longest test I've ever you know taken in my life. It was 600 plus thousand questions or something and. None of them made any sense whatsoever. I remember one of the questions was, uh, "Who do you love more, your mom or your dad?" And do you love uh, do you love roses and uh, tulips and stuff like that? It was just like what? So I just answered C for everything, and they were like, "Cool, no, <laughs> I didn't do that." But uh, 
I tried my hardest, and I guess they, they thought I was, um, I guess I passed, or, or you want to call it a pass, and I went on to talk to the regimental psychiatrist, and uh, he wanted to make sure that I was still fit for the for the job and what it entailed, and passed that evaluation and a few more other mental evaluations and drug tests and everything, and went on to sniper section and started a whole new new guy probation period. And uh, trained up by the guys who have been doing it for for, for so long, uh, many deployments, and uh, taught us how to stalk and do the mathematics and ballistics before we went on to sniper school. Um, at least we would have that little foot in the door and, and land navigation, uh, so we don't pass, so we don't fail sniper school, which is you know, has a pretty good dropout rate in, in, in itself. Uh, the stalk phase alone is like seventy percent fail rate. Um, we got all trained up, and then they wanted, uh, you know, taught us how to shoot, not taught us how to shoot, but the sniper way. Um, I'm not used to, or at that time, I wasn't used to shooting from a football field away, like a quarter or a penny size, you know, object and five bullets have to go into this little hole. I'm like, what? Well, let me ask you, because I'm curious. I mean, even the military people wouldn't know this. What is Mm -hmm. different about sniper shooting than regular shooting? Consistency. Consistency. And I would say that's the, the separation. It's just understanding mathematics and how it is. Uh, the environment will affect your bullet. Um, like on, in, the, in the Army, you shoot 300 yards and you put the sight, um, you know, front sight picture, line it with a little bubble and right. send it and hit center mass. And it, it, it's as long as you hit that target, the target goes down. With sniping, you're trying to put that one little bullet, or five bullets, into a hole 300 yards, into a three inch circle. So, unless then, uh, depending on the rifle system, it can get down to about an inch and a half or an inch. Um, you know, and um, in circumference circle, you're putting five bullets into something three football fields away. And it's just a, a, a lot of consistency and, and calming of the nerves and focus, a lot of focus. How hard is it to calm your nerves? I mean, that's a, it's so much easier said than done. Oh, they tell you just to breathe and breathe slow and, you're, you know, you stay relaxed. And, again, even civilians who shoot know that, even if you're a hunter. You know, you can't have your heart rate, you know, pumping if you want to if you want to have an accurate shot, but what's different about that whole process? Because I would imagine, again, when you put another human in your crosshairs, things are different. Um, oh, yeah. And, and the natural reaction of your body would be that you would start, your heart rate would go up. So how do you control that? Well, in training, it really wasn't that hard. I, I grew up with, uh, reading books from Carlos about, uh, about Carlos Hathcock, and he always referred to it as going to his little bubble, and in that bubble, nothing exists but you know just him and the extension of his body, which is the rifle. And just reading that at such a young age in middle school, and you know reading it you know multiple times all the way up you know through high school, I guess I ingrained that mentality, you know, kind of like superimposed it onto my mentality, and I thought I was just in my own little bubble and nothing else existed. But that was just for shooting paper targets. The first time I ever had to do it on a live target was a totally different experience. Like, all the training and all the stuff like that kind of, I'm not going to say goes out the window, but you have to revert or, you know, go back to this core base of what sniping is about, the, the breathing, the trying, you know, trying to relax and just calming down until the shot breaks, follows you. And this little, you know, uh, I guess, uh, this to go off of after or during an engagement. And for me, it was more or less just like, oh, my gosh, this looks way different than, what I expect, and you can see everything now. And pulling the trigger, it was just a, it was more of a connecting feel, uh, I would say. It was more of a intimacy behind it. And it felt totally different from 
all the other guys, you know, that had that had shot over the course of you know five deployments and being an RWS gunner and a striker gunner during uh, during a time in Iraq when you know the rules of engagement were were different. Um, I had a lot of trigger time, um, but it was totally different than sniping. It was uh, a connection to the where I guess I would say uh, I'm not going to say I felt like depressed, but I went through this roller coaster roller coaster of emotion. Um, after shooting a live target, it's the excitement, the big rush, just like if you're going to shoot a deer or, um, you know, a hog or something like that, you get this big dump of, you know, just blood pumping through your body. And I would calm that down until the, I guess the blood would kind of feel like ice cold and you can feel the, the coldness, the chill of the blood and, um, uh, kind of breathe, but the breathing really doesn't take away the thump of the, the heart. It's just like pounding off the, the, the body armor and kind of like seeing this flutter and, uh, make sure my math is okay and everything's happening so fast, but it really, uh, it seems like it's happening slow, but uh, it's happening fast. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going so slow right now. So you're trying to rush, you're trying to rush the speed up. And then in real life speed, you're going ultra fast. And I don't know, looking back at it, it was just a roller coaster of emotion. Send around, hit the guy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I just dropped this guy from a distance and I knew exactly what bullet hit him and exactly where it hit him. And, no one else was, shoot, uh, was shooting. It was a personal, you know, in normal firefights in a, in a range of battalion or in a regular infantry unit. Uh, it, it's a ton of guys shooting, and, you know, the guy might get, it, you know, might get hit 10, 12 times, and five guys shot him. But it was just a more intimate, this one round that I put into my magazine, put into my rifle, the rifle that I cleaned and zeroed and I touched over and over and, and held for so long and gave a name to and painted, you know, many, many hours worth of, you know, time and effort going into this, you know, this rifle. And to be that intimate with the rifle and, and, and hitting a guy, it's like, it, it's like I was just touching that bullet like 10 minutes ago. And now it, it took this guy out. It's just a weird emotion. And then after that, I would kind of go back to, I'm not sure if it was the way I was, you know, uh, brought up as, as a, a Christian background. I would kind of feel like remorseful. But then I would have this internal, like, I guess, battle of a yin and yang where, you know, I kind of try to suppress that emotion and go back to the, the sniper mind without more, uh, warning, without right. remorse. So it's like, okay, so there's no remorse now. And then I go back to my room and kind of forget about it. It's like I, re I remember the, the engagement, but I forget every single uh, every single emotion after that. Everything just goes numb. I just remember an image of me shooting the guy and then just uh, a void after that. And it didn't happen over and over and over again over the course of time. I guess it built up to a point where they get out and, and I don't know, things have a way of, of, of shaking you back to realization to uh, you better leave, you know, live a better life or something like that before you do something stupid. Okay, let, let's, there's a lot here. I, I kind of want to go through all this in, in, in a little bit more detail. So mm -hmm. after you finish sniper school, um, when do you get to your first deployment and, you know, what's the time frame of this whole thing? What year are we? Uh, we're in 2007, 8-ish. Well, seven, yeah, seven to eight. And I got a chance to do a lot of schools during that time frame. Uh, we had a larger budget at the time and we got a chance to not just go to U.S. Army Sniper School. We went through a lot of um, civilian, uh, I'm not going to say civilian sniper schools. They were the instructors were civilians, but they had access to a lot of um, knowledge and a lot of uh, things we didn't have access to. And they had you know, they put on clinics, and they've had the, the cream of the crop come out to uh, to train and be instructed by and at their facility, um, like the tier one guys. So 
we started going to these schools and uh, learning everything we possibly could. We would send guys to Marine Scout Sniper School. We would send them to SF Sniper School, Sniper Course, and um, just had like this whole group of knowledge. And I had a chance to uh, go through quite a few as well, uh, a private high-angle course, an extreme long-range course, um, urban course, and then U.S. Army, and then the one put on by battalion um, during that time. And a few other things uh, as far as competitions and uh, a local, well, I say local now, but during the time it was a private gun uh, facility or shooting range down in um, Kingsville, Texas that we would go to. Uh, I had a chance to really test the limits of the rifle and, and learn a whole new type of type of math. And my entire six, that six month train up is where I've accumulated, I guess, uh, most of that time was spent to, to sniper schools and had no personal time. I had maybe about two weeks off during that uh, entire six months. Everything else was gone and being away. And uh, right after that, I went on deployment. I uh, was, yeah, had no free time. It was just a you know, two weeks total time and went on to Afghanistan to uh, Helmand province. And I remember uh, about to go there and our plane kept getting delayed. Uh, the, I guess the luxury of the benefits of being a special operations, we would, you know, we can deploy rapidly and be anywhere in the world in 18 hours. And, you know, it was just a different style of traveling and we didn't do it, uh, I guess the regular way. And, uh, our plane would get delayed you know, three or four times before we're leading up, and you get all amped up, and you go to the compound, and everyone's saying goodbyes to whoever they say goodbye to, and, and you see guys with red eyes, but they never are crying, and maybe I had a you know red eye or two or something like that, and I don't know. It was just a, this very somber somber uh, vibe and emotion just on our entire compound in Fort Benning, and they would say, oh, weather's bad, or who knows what would happen, and you know, we would have to go back, and you're excited, but then you know the next day it's like, oh, we have to do this all over again. So we right, went through this yeah. roller coaster like three or four times, um, and finally when it was time to go, I uh, like I was a smoker, and I would take what I think I would need to last at least the first month of the deployment. So I would take, you know, two packs of cigarettes or something like that. And I just was broke being in the military enlisted. So it was just two packs of cigarettes, and that was it. Um, deployed and our on deployment are leading up to it. I would smoke that pack on just one pack, just waiting on the airfield uh, <laughs> to, to get on the plane. So I'm like, oh man, this is looking pretty bad. And then I smoked the other pack on a stop at Germany. In Germany, yeah. And then I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like, well, there goes that. But I'm um, gonna have to wait and, and make a way. And whenever I get to country, either it's you know, if it's bumming some off of a Afghan or getting some from you know, probably uh, a team, a teammate or something like that. But yeah, I trained up, went on to uh, Helmand Province, and at the time they told us that it wasn't really going to be that bad. It was expect we were expect just a boring deployment, a lot of Xbox and a lot of you know tan, uh, yeah, tanning at that time and lifting weights and coming back and taking over downtown Columbus, Georgia when we got back. But it was the exact polar opposite of that. It was uh, it's my I knew it was going to be my last deployment. Um, I wasn't sure quite yet. It was one of those things that, depending on how this goes, if I didn't feel like I did enough, I would probably re-enlist. But um, it was the polar opposite. It was it was a hellacious uh, deployment. It was it was an intense deployment. Very what was your intense. mission? Uh, it was really no set mission. Um, well, I'm not gonna say set. Just take out all the high value targets in a specific area. Okay. Um, before the Marine Corps. Uh, went in to do their invasion before the big announcement that was on TV, um, I guess you would say. And we just found ourselves in the right place, right time, and mission set changed. And I don't think we really knew. Well, I didn't know what we were doing. It was just 
I knew we were killing a lot of people in, in Helmand Province, and it was every single night. We were there for four months, and there wasn't much time off. It was, you know, you know, we would deploy, go out, and we would normally uh, fight all night into the day, uh, have a hard time extracting, helicopter gets shot up, or helicopter's too hot to land. But, I mean, the average night was uh, uh, eight hours of, of no kidding, walking gunfight, and I would go in with, on average, about 210 rounds, and I would lucky to come back with a mag or a mag and a half, or I would change a lot of mags just to get a fresh one in, but it was a lot of shooting in that uh, on that deployment, and I felt like oh, I just got that cocky mentality. The first night out uh, as a sniper, being in charge of someone and planning out my route and what buildings I was going to look at and, and maneuver and how to... It's just playing essentially a, a chess game and you're playing chess with just real people and I just put myself in positions, you know, I guess anticipating if I were a bad guy, what would I do? And think of, you know, whatever possible outcomes I could think of and, and try to find a way to set them off and kind of how I planned everything. And it was easy to do it on paper. And when you get on the ground and you have someone's life in your hands, or your spotter or the guy you're, you know, uh, leading up to a target, it's like, oh, crap, I have no idea what I really am now. Everything looks exactly the same on the ground. Um, but then you go back to your training and you uh, go back to your gut instinct. And suddenly things worked out because I didn't want to be that guy. You know, I was a you know, team leader on the sniper section. I had a guy and my first stop out, I get totally lost. I'm looking at, you know, something that I'm not supposed to be looking at. And something's happening. You know, the, the guys are doing something on the other side of the objective. But it didn't happen that way. It was, uh, it happened and uh, relatively smooth, I guess, uh, that first little operation mm-hmm. we did. I found my building and, uh, did what I had to do and watched what I had to watch and can you, a fire shot. It was, it, can you, you know, walk pretty, me through that first sniper engagement? Can I mean, can you yeah, describe, yeah, what, are, you, are you on top of a building? Are you laying down? And, and, and what do you see as you're looking through your scope? Give me the whole deal. Yeah, at this point I was, um, well, we were, uh, I guess it was Exville. Yeah, we were on Exville and I'm, you know, overwatching the guys as they get ready to Exville and get extracted and I'm on top of a building and I have a family underneath me and my spotter next to me and the family underneath me, I can see them. They're starting to wake up, so I just kind of look at them and, you know, make that universal gesture of, you know, be quiet, don't say anything, and they're just staring at me up there, and I felt comfortable with them, so I started looking out at this tree line, uh, you know, relatively a few football fields away, 300, 400, you know, plus yards, and start looking out at this tree line, and lo and behold, as the sun's starting to come up, I see, you know, some guys just hunched back, uh, like turtle shell hopping or, or crawling or bouncing up and down going around this tree line I'm like what the heck i thought they were about to pray or i didn't know what they were doing so i'm you know observing them and tell my spotter hey keep an eye on these guys look at these guys just had a weird feeling about it and as the sun's coming up i see the this gleam of light or a flare come off of this guy's underneath his man dress and that little thing they wear and i was like oh my gosh that's an ak-47 and as he, you know, he makes this little gesture, he turns to move, and I'm already dialed in at 300, uh, 300 yards and really not much of a wind hold. And I see the rifle come up, and I send it. I can kind of see the apex of the, the vapor trail of the rifle or the bullet as it's, it's right perfect, as it's a perfect picture of for a sniper engagement. The sun's right place, and watch the bullet impact the guy, and all hell broke loose after that, just open up on him, and... Uh, my spotter, he engaged the guy with his 300 wind mag, and that was the most devastating round I've ever seen hit flesh. It was like, I don't know, it was, it, the, the rooftop shook, 
it felt like the roof was going to cave in and all that energy, the kinetic energy hitting his target was just, it was like, oh my, it was, it was devastating. The guy had no head and I engaged the last guy and I was like, oh my gosh, I just killed two guys. That was weird. Get off the uh, building, we exfil and I come back and it was just one of those things like, whoa, dude, did you shoot someone with a psych rifle? I was like, yeah, I did. It was kind of weird. And, and it happened the next night and the night after that and just keep going, you know, kept going mm-hmm. and kept going. Uh, either laying down suppress a fire. Uh, there was a, a, a few times where I would shoot people and you know, they're shooting at us and you hit them. And I know I hit the guy and for some reason I can't find the body. That was a, that was a, a regular, not a regular, but it happened. It happened a, a bit. And one of those things I don't count as a, you know, I killed this guy. It was just a, I don't know. I see his blood and guts there, but there's no body. So maybe he, uh, maybe he resurrected himself or something. Yeah. It happened I mean, to my daughter, you know, and it, it happens, I guess. It's, war is weird. It's very weird. This was the deployment where you had 33 confirmed kills. Now, uh-huh. when, when you have that many, um, you know, you talked before about the emotions of the whole thing, and I'm sure at some point in time it becomes routine, uh, that kind of roller coaster of emotion. But does any of those 33 stand out to you more for any particular reason than another outside of the first one you just told me about? Yeah. Uh, I would say the one, two in particular, one was, uh, uh, I call him the farm guy in blue. He's had this farmers, like a, it was a blue man dress in this farmer type setup. It was a weird, like uh, structure. It was just weird. It was like a farmland and I'm getting up on this building. Uh, and it was a perfectly flat, building and I've been climbing up on buildings for a long time and for me to see this flat rooftop I was like yeah it stood out to like oh my gosh this is this is like I don't know the U.S. almost it feels weird like this was a good building I like the rooftop um snipers wanted to I guess look at buildings different than rooftops it was a beautiful rooftop um so I lean over the edge and I see this guy doing the zigzag and zigzag and just going up and down this uh little pathway like a like a like a trench or something like that it was weird. Um, and the uh, firing team starts opening up on this guy. They're like, hey, he's got whatever. I barely hear it. They open up and they're trying to, you know, hey, don't come over to this line. Putting down some suppressive fire. And he's got like a suicide vest or a grenade or something. So I tell my spotter on another building, uh, spotter slash sniper, hey, engage this guy. I, I really don't have a, uh, a good steady platform. I don't know if I really just didn't want to do it. I didn't really care or something like that. I don't know what was going on. I knew the guy was going to get hit in about five seconds. So the uh, my spotter, he sent his 300 wooden mag round, and I could hear this weird thud, and it hit a tree branch or something like that, and the guy's still running. I was like, oh, crap, he didn't get hit. So um, I go to a knee, and I look down at the guy, and it was just extremely close in my scope, and I can see him uh, looking down at his back, and uh, screaming something, and he's going towards the line of the, uh, the not the firing squad, but the uh, blocking position, and he's running at a full sprint now at these guys. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's about to, I don't know, blow himself up or something like that, and uh, he's behind some pretty good foliage, and the rounds weren't really impacting him, but you could see the bushes popping around him. So I zero in my crosshairs on the back or top part of his, uh, his back and squeeze the trigger, and I look back when I settle back down from the recoil, and he still is running. I'm like, crap, I missed. And I forgot about – it wasn't the angle. I just was rushing the shot, and I didn't, I didn't feel clean. I didn't feel good about the shot, so I resent it. And when the, the rifle settled back down, it was the guy was going. I was like, man, I wonder if I missed that one. And I didn't really feel anything until I got off the rooftop, and we went in to go look at the body. And 
like his heart was hanging out and oh. was like blood all over the, the little bushes he had fell into. It was just dripping and took pictures and his eyes were open. And I was like, whoa, his eyes are open and there's a lot of blood. And I looked at my round. Remember the round that hit the M118LR, a hollow tip round. And that was pretty devastating, uh, I guess, to see because I know exactly where the bullet went. But it was, I guess, not intriguing, but sniper and a sniper school, you learn you know, different types of ballistics and, and ballistics of what happens of a bullet or to a bullet inside of a, a flesh or, you know, a concrete or a wall. So, you know, if you have a safe shot, if, if the shot's going to be, you know, endangering or could potentially endanger someone else. So when I hit the guy, I think the intriguing thing to me was where the bullet came out at and the expansion of the round. It was just, uh, it was like, well, that was pretty, that was intense. That one stood out to my longest shot. Um, stood out, was right over about half a mile. And, uh, so we're talking about 2,600 feet, which is yards-wise close to what? Do my math here. 900 yards, almost 1,000 meters maybe? Yeah, it's right at 1,000. Okay. Uh, 1,015, 1,020 or something like that was what uh, my laser range, uh, the laser range finder came out to be. But Paul Martinez, was uh, he came out, uh, he was right beside me, and uh, now he's a pretty good sniper, and I guess he did some cool stuff too. Uh, maybe hear a story about it later on in the future. But um, he was next to me, and the look on his face after I sent the shot was like, oh, wow, I did do that. It was uh, the longest shot I ever had, and the 1.7 seconds that it takes a, a bullet uh, 308 round to uh, hit a target at 1,000 yards, it was like the longest 1.7 seconds <laughs> of my life because the first round hit, and I watched the dirt pop up in front of the guy, uh, maybe 50 feet or so. I don't know. I can't really judge that distance. He was on a hilltop. And the bullet impacts the hill uh, beneath them, and he looks at this puff of smoke, and I look at the puff of smoke, and I'm like, oh, I'm right here. Uh, my distance is off. Something's off. So I just uh, adjusted for that. I held over and held off to the right and resent the round. And it was like he looked down, and then he looked up to where he thought he may have uh, the round had came, uh, you know, come from, but I was shooting suppressed, and he had no idea. And I watched him look up, and as he looked up, it was like an 18-wheeler truck just fell out of the sky. And hit him on top of his head and his body collapsed. And I look over at Paul like, dude, did you see that? And he's just laughing at this crazy, not crazy. It was just like a, like a, I don't know. It's just a weird, like surfer. Cool, bro. Like that was pretty cool type, uh, <laughs> type things. And, uh, the guy, I never forget the guy, what he looked like long black, uh, man dressed and a PKN next to him or, uh, and then AK 47. It was a, just a weird, uh, I don't know. It was one of one that stands out, I guess. Cause it was kind of cool to, Watch a bullet travel that long, but it felt like a felt like about I don't know ten second flight time. It was only wow. just under two seconds. So now that you've been removed from being a sniper, what emotions from being a sniper still stay with you, or is there any visions that you have that stay with you? What, what still lingers? Uh, it, I won't necessarily say, uh, necessarily say visions. Um, I got out and. I thought the lifestyle was over and I picked up contracting and deployed with them for a little while and got out of that. So I don't, I want to say I got out of that mentality uh, maybe two years ago, three years ago. Um, but what stayed with me, not necessarily faces or anything like that, or, uh, you know, killing guys. It was the, um, the no remorse part. Like life was just different after that. Um, you know, I could get into a, a, I guess an argument with someone or a fight with someone, and you know, my mind at that time was just that, dude. I, you know, I, I could I could kill this person, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't care. Like it, there would be no emotion behind it, and I would I would feel perfectly fine doing it. 
And I just started feeling, I guess, knowing the fact that I could do it, um, it was almost my downfall at some, you know, if you want to want to call it that, was I was too uh, too hot-headed or, or too unapproachable or, or not making smart decisions because when you know you're almost, that, you know, you feel a certain way, you feel almost invincible, you tend to make different decisions in life because, hey, I'm not going to get, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get beat up, I'm not going to get shot. And, you know, I kind of miss that. I miss that rush and I miss that that adrenaline rush and I would try to, you know, find ways to, 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 I guess, get it, whether that's hopping on my motorcycle after a long night at the bar or, you know, just doing dumb, dumb, dumb stuff just to get a rush and starting fights or just starting trouble just to do it. Um, just missing that, that chaos. I think chaos is where, you know, you, you, uh, you, you trained and you've learned and perfected uh, to be your best in, in chaos. You operate your finest. And when things were, you know, they're not as good, then, kind of you know want to seek that seek that out to, to feel comfortable again um that's one of the things i think that it, that i held on to the longest and missing that roller coaster ride is you know not as sick but as it, as weird as it may sound that roller coaster ride of emotion i mean that's what i missed the most and not having that i wanted to you know ride that roller coaster again to see what you know see what it was like and and that's essentially what we're all here on the for anyways, is just to experience this one long roller coaster ride and you know, ninety nine percent of the emotions of the roller coaster ride are gonna be the same anyways. But you continue to ride it. There was no difference between that and wanting to ride that roller coaster ride of sniping and, and getting back into it. Do do the emotions that you were desensitized to before, have they returned? Um, no, I kinda keep them compartmentalized. I kinda keep Why? them in a, in a nice Nice little box that, that, I don't know. I don't know if Dorothy could even find it. But um, it's one of those things that uh, like I know it's there and, and the emotion is there. I, I, I show it when I need to. I, I think that the good side, or the good thing about it is that it allows me, I guess, to essentially be to be me. I think, though I get, or some, I used to, I get caught up on this, you know, you know not the veteran thing, but I deployed and I did this and I did that and I lived that life for so long that I held on to um, you know, I'm, I was holding on to a chapter for so long, and it's like when you're reading a book, you don't hold on to chapter one or three and, you know, continue reading the book while you're simultaneously, simultaneously flipping to that one chapter you're holding on to. It's kind of like living life like that. And it just wasn't working out. So I learned how to compartmentalize that sniper, that, that you know, emotion in case I need to go back to it. I know it's there. Uh, it'll never leave me. It's something that, you know, was a part of my life, but I'm allowed to, now I'm allowed to be, me before that was there and which is you know i would like to think a nice guy and you know i just like to be happy i like to you know see other people happy and you know i know that little emotional box of you know a, a tsunami whatever you want to call it the abyss and uh, i don't know i used to yeah whatever you want to call it it can get bad it can get bad if i have to go back to that your first book called the reaper was a new york times bestseller when you wrote that was that cathartic for you Oh yeah, I had started. I started writing uh, long before that. I self-published five books uh, before that one was even, you know, looked at or picked up or announced. And it's just a love of not necessarily the, the, the wanting to get it all out. At, at first, I started writing. It was just to just to write. I wanted a hobby, something to you know keep me busy. But I was missing something. It was like yeah, I'm writing and it's fun, but I don't have this. I don't have that. I just had that that spark that I was you know I was missing. And uh, my dad said, hey, maybe you should start writing a, a journal. I went through some other things, a lot of self-medication and a lot of dumb decisions. And uh, he was like, maybe you should just write it out on paper and see where it goes from there. You like to write. 
maybe you should write about your story, like in a journal. And I picked up doing that. I got this thing called Dragon Speech, and I started to uh, just talk to myself. And I was talking to the computer, and it would type this stuff out. And, you know, 30% of it was the wrong way of spelling or what I intended. But at least it got <laughs> out. And, you know, and, and it was just, it was weird. It was kind of like therapeutic to, to physically write it by hand, type it, and then incorporate the, you know, the act of speaking it and watching those speak those those words, you know, manifest itself onto the screen and then eventually on paper. It was like a release of something, you know, getting 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 rid of you know, like getting rid of something. It was it was like that. So what's the difference between your first book, The Reaper, and now your new book that's out, The Way of the Reaper? Uh, kind of give yeah. us the nuances. Yeah, The Way of the Reaper. Um, yeah, that came out. What was it earlier this year, 2016 or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 2016. I, I honestly don't remember. 2016 or 17. The paperback came out in 17 August, so 2016. That title came out, um, and it was just a an accumulation of the the peaks, the the you know the highs of my deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I have some crazy ones from Mosul, uh, crazy ones from Tikrit, uh, crazy ones from you know Jalalabad, crazy ones from. Uh, just all over different different uh, you know places I got a chance to hop around and there's ten stories of things that just really stood out to me and, and things that you know I, I never forget I dream about and you know, reoccurring dreams and things that are always on my mind the top ten and got a chance to put those out on on paper as well and uh, close all those chapters I guess if you want to call it that just finally um, you know there's really no point of me uh, writing another book of you know this is what I did in the military so I moved on and. Uh, just announced uh, not long ago that um, uh, have a fictional book coming out. I mean, how Brad Thor and some Tom, Tom uh, some of Todd Clancy's writers had a chance to look it over and uh, give some blurbs about it. And it's a fictional book um, called Weeper Ghost Target. Kind of kept the title, but it's completely fictional and it's portrayed through the eyes of Vic Harwood. And uh, it's gotten a lot of praise, man. It's gotten a lot of praise, and it was a way of me, you know, closing out a chapter and. Uh, one way of life and, and kind of not continuing it, but, you know, living vicariously through this new guy. Um, you know, it, it's kind of cool when I get a chance to be a kid again and, you know, use my imagination, which is, you know, kind of where all this stuff started anyways, which is just using my imagination. I think, you know, a lot of veterans are, you know, people are, when they get out the military, they want to get out and they say, what's next? You know, and I, they look for, uh, I don't know, not necessarily something physical, but, it's like the dream's gone. You dream so long to get to where you're at in, the, in your military career, and you stopped after that. And it, it was kind of cool. It's kind of cool for me to pick it back up and dream again and portray a new message. Uh, you know, not necessarily all about killing and stuff like that. It's just like, you know, uh, it, it, it it's not like don't buy my book because, or buy my book because I'm a veteran or whatnot. I'm, I'm, I'm of course you know grateful and. It does prove to show that, you know, uh, when you say, hey, I thank you for your service, it's not bumper sticker deep, but I just want other people to know, hey, there's more. I've, I really, really enjoy writing, and I can portray this through, uh, you know, my mind. And a lot of people say, oh, I wish I had this guy's mind. I see what you see, and you get a chance to actually do that now. Um, you know, reading something that I've, you know, had in my mind, and now that's on paper, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's an inspiration to someone else. I think that's what, you know, the whole killing thing, everything has a polar opposite. And one point in my life, I'm, really really good at killing and now i'm really i like helping people out and you know inspiring and stuff like that so who knows if i'm the next i'm not gonna say tom clancy that was a phenomenal writer and <laughs> i would never even you know approach his heels but you know it's, it's something to shoot for 
And he's, you know, someone that I admire and idolize. Growing up, it was Carlos Hathcock. Now it's Tom Clancy, you know, and Brad Gore. And, you know, it's just different, different, different lifestyle. And maybe it's a way of showing others that you don't have to, you know, stick to a certain demographic or stick to a certain thing when you get out to, you know, I'm going to start up a company. And it just turns out to be the exact same company that everybody else in the veteran community, you know, comes out with. They're there to be different. You know, I'm going fictional right. about, you know, dare to be different. I think we we, we we tend to lack that that freedom of expression or freedom mm-hmm. of, of thought because we've kind of been controlled in the military, you know, essentially. Right. Been very structured and getting out and just expanding. Maybe that's what the calling is. I don't know. But I know it's fun and, and it took two years to write and I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are get something out of it. Ah, congrats, it congratulations. That, that that's so, awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned at the top of the show your nickname, the Reaper. Uh, was that mm-hmm. a nickname you got from your deployment with the thirty-three kills? Yeah, it was right after that. My who, spotter, who gave it to uh, you? My spotter, Mike Pemberton. Um, so I had this little CD, and we would make deployment videos. Well, at the time, I don't even know who was uh, allowed to, but Mike Pemberton uh, was my spotter, and he's an older guy. Um, I'm not going to say his age, but he was older, and he liked old school. Or older type of music or different music that I'm not used to. And he had liked this band called Blue Oyster Cult. Don't fear the and Reaper. <laughs> he was, yeah, he's, he was, I remember him snapping his thing and he was kind of humming it to him, to me and he uh, can't sing worth anything. And I was like, okay, that, that song does sound, you know, sound kind of cool. And I was like, oh, man, he's like, yeah, like the Reaper, man. Like, you're like the Angel of Death, dude. And I went back and I made this, uh, this CD from a deployment. I had this Kodak film camera and a little uh, pink digital one, uh, took some pictures and made a little DVD video of some stuff we uh, got into uh, uh, between me and him. And it had that song playing in the background. It opened up with uh, the same quote that's on my plaque by John J. Rambo. Um, and then I have, uh, it leads into that Blue Oyster cult, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. Uh, you know, I neglected to mention this and I, I, I apologize, but uh, you were also the first African-American sniper to deploy as a sniper uh, with your unit uh, in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, what sort of, you know, pride is there in that and, and, you know, the honor and distinguishment of being the first African-American to do so? Uh, I don't know. Like, I never I never really gave it thought. I remember when guys were kind of, like, questioning it, like, you know, hey, dude, I never saw, you know, I never seen a black guy in, in, in battalion as a sniper. And I was like, yeah, me neither. And then <laughs> over, you know, over some time, it, it you know, turned out – there were guys who were, you know, you know, you know, black guys who were snipers in uh, third range of battalion, but to deploy in the global war on terrorism was what it turned out to be. And people always were, you know, like, no, he's the first one and not the first one, but there was some truth behind it. But the truth was that, you know, it was the first during the global war on terrorism uh, with third range of battalion. And after and before me, it was maybe like a handful more, like five. That's pushing it. That's um, maybe given that a good number, but yeah, maybe that. And I never really gave it thought. It was it was funny. Like yeah, it was kind of funny. It was just I don't know. I it was a it was just funny. Like I don't know. It was just a weird thing to even sure. think about at the time. Um, I wasn't used to it. I was the only. I had been the only uh, you know black guy in my platoon for for many many years. Um, and it was just I could go out with the guys. They had my back, and we we got into a lot of trouble downtown and. Uh, it, it was never one of those things where it really stood out, and I never really saw myself that way. Right. I don't know. Maybe it was the, the whole purpose of me being colorblind was for that. I don't know. Uh, but, 
but I listen, just never really viewed it that way. You it, know, it's what's great about our organization, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter yeah. where you came yeah. from, what the skin color is, or anything else. I mean, we're all wearing the same uniform, and that takes precedence yeah. over everything else. Let me ask you about the the thirty three kills, which is a record for a three and a half month deployment. Does that mean anything to you? Does that is that stay with you? How do you, when you hear it? Is it one of those things where you roll your eyes at it, or is it a sense of pride? Like, what what does that record? What does that number mean? Um, I don't know. At first, it was it was like, uh, I guess when it first came out, um, the number had been changed uh, times from a higher number, and I was like, no, dude, I'm not kill seventy five people or whatever how many people. Um, the rumor it was a funny joke going around overseas and. Uh, the fellow signed a, a guy's last deployment flag, and I had my official number of kills. He was like, dude, last deployment, bro, you got us on my flag and put how many guys you killed on there. It was 33. Um, and I shot, you know, a lot more before that. and It, it was just a, a number. It was just a number. It was, you know, cool to actually, you know, I guess do it as a sniper. Uh, that was the whole dream was to be a sniper. And, and you know, to kill or, or take a, a shot on a live target as a sniper is so rare in the sniper community. I mean, the odds of you actually doing your job as a sniper, um, shooting the shooting portion is like 10%, less than 10%. You know, 90, 90 plus percent of that is just looking and looking and, and reporting back. Um, so for me to even shoot as much as I was shooting, was, was that was more to me than, than the number of, of, of kills and, you know, whatever, you know, I guess people I got a chance to save and, and help out. Um, and I, that, was, that was cool too, but I never really saw it as, I don't know, the guys, some guys would say, hey, man, thanks, dude, you saved my life, and I've gotten emails, uh, you know, years after uh, some of those engagements. Like, dude, I want to say, you know, uh, one guy in particular, um, during a, a, an ambush, they were in, uh, I guess, in and uh, Danger Coast ambush, and I sent off a few rounds and uh, killed a few guys, and he sent me a message, like, dude, everyone calls you the Reaper, I call you, like, my guardian angel, and I was like, oh, that's soft, man, stop, so, you know. It was just a job, I guess. More or less just a job. Everyone did it, and you know, just a job. That's a very humble attitude. I mean, not to be braggadocious about death. I mean, who you know, it's not. I don't think that's who we are. You'd almost come off uh, looking a little bit, you know, silly for doing so. But in the same respect, you know, it's more about the men you saved and, and the teamwork and, and everything else that went into it. But uh, I was just curious because I mean, I, I don't know if that, that's something that still hangs around when you talk to some of the other guys in the unit or is there a plaque up in, in the hallways of your old unit, you know, honoring you for it or anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's a weird distinguishment, you know? Oh yeah. I think that the, the stories and, and the guys who were affected by it, um, maybe that, maybe that lives longer. Maybe that means something different. Um, you know, for at, at one point in my life, I think there's just a, a, a transition that maybe I'm going through and, it, it, it's kind of like uh, showing itself through, you know, the books I've done and the way I do things now and, and things of that nature. Maybe it's just like a transition. I mean, 33, yes, the amount of guys that I killed and, you know, uh, you know, shot in Afghanistan, but it's like, eh, maybe that doesn't define me. I started to look at things like that. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Maybe the 33 could mean something else. I know, and I don't know if you're into like the whole numerology thing, but 33 also could stand for, or it stands for, of knowing all the master teacher, I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe it could be that too now. But at one point in time, it was really cool to look at and say, "Dude, I killed like 33 guys in this short amount of time," and yeah, it was cool. Um, I, I'll never forget it. Uh, definitely never forget it. And oh, it was it was it was cool at one point in time. But I think you know, with maturity and age and, and life changes, that 
I don't really dwell on the killing aspect too much of it. Like, I know I did it, but I'm at that part of the roller coaster ride where, you know, I'm on a different, uh, I guess, a different, uh, different fall or different rise. I'm not sure. Well, look, I mean, it's an accomplishment. And again, as I just said, it's more of an accomplishment for the team that you were part of and the lives oh, yeah. that you saved and everything else. And, and, you know, although it sounds kind of callous to talk about it so nonchalantly on our end, uh, for those of us oh, who... Oh, no, have, don't get me wrong. No, no, those yeah. guys definitely needed to be shot. No, no, <laughs> but what I mean is, to, to the average yeah. person listening, you know, we, we talk about death and killing routinely in the military because, well, it's a job. I mean, you know, there's no other way to look at it other than that. I mean, it, it, it's, if, you're, if you're a pizza maker and your job is to deliver pizzas, you talk about it routinely oh, because yeah. it's what you do. I mean, it's just the nature of our work. So for those who are civilians listening, to hear us talk about it so freely without any kind of reservation, well, that's just kind of the the nature of the work that we do. But that being said, you know, I, I commend you, obviously, not only for your toughness, but doing a job that very, very few people can do. Uh, many have tried, but, you know, as I say, many are called, but few are chosen. And, and the fact yeah. that you did it with such success is is a testament um, to the, the amount of work and, and diligence you put into your career. And so for that, I thank you. I mean, that's that's really kind of what I was oh, trying yeah. to, to get out. I mean, that that's oh, yeah. the big thing. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. It, it, I would do it in the heartbeat again and love what I do and, and what I did. And, oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't change not one, one thing, not one thing. Well, look, again, just thank you so much for the time. Uh, it's been an incredible story. Uh, I really highly suggest you guys check out his book, The Reaper, and his second book, The Way of the Reaper, and, and especially the first one because it gives you a lot more insight into some of the stuff we talked about uh, during your deployments and, and being a sniper and all the other stuff and it's just incredible to talk to you because there is so much to your story. And I think a lot of people need to hear it. It hasn't been told enough. And I appreciate you being part of the podcast, brother. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.